Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. What happened to Iraq's oil wealth? That is the central question of the book Pipe Dreams, The Plundering of Iraq's Oil Wealth by my guest today, Aaron Banco. Erin Banco is an investigative journalist at the Star-Ledger in New Jersey, where she covers the intersection of money and government. She has reported from the Middle East for years, and she puts her investigative skills to use by examining documents and cultivating sources who explain the sordid tale of corruption that is surrounding Iraq's oil wealth, particularly in the Kurdish region, which is the focus of her book. Iraq sits on the world's fifth largest oil reserves, but oil wealth has not trickled down to the Iraqi people. In this conversation and in her book, Erin explains why. Now, a quick side note, we recorded this conversation while Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil, was still Secretary of State. Of course, he has been replaced, or I should say will be replaced. They've recently set a date on Mike Pompeo's nomination hearings. But just keep that in mind when you're listening to this conversation. And one last thing before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews on iTunes. I so appreciate the support. If you're new to the podcast, please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and check out our robust archives of people I've interviewed and topics we've covered. Uh, there is a lot there, and, and you can uh, have some fun. All right, now here is my conversation with journalist Aaron Banco. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So uh, my book focuses on the uh, Kurdish region of Iraq, which holds um, not a lot of, of the total amount of of Iraq's oil, but uh, it holds, some people say, about 10% of Iraq's total reserves, though that number sort of fluctuates depending on who you talk to. And that's only because the uh, seismic studies that have been done aren't uh, incredibly accurate. Um, so, but, but what makes this region interesting in terms of the oil that it does have is that the oil sector itself is newer in the sense that uh, international oil companies came to the region in uh, mass post-2003. There were some that were there uh, before that. There were about six contracts signed before the invasion. Uh, but for the most part, the companies came after the toppling of Saddam. And, you know, and that's sort of different than when you look at the oil sector in, in Baghdad, uh, which is overseen by the central government, um, which is obviously uh, decades and decades older than that. Um, and, and so they operate separately. Um, they have two different sort of oil contract models. Um, 
the ways in which they interact with international oil companies are quite different. Um, you know, the there are open sort of transparent bidding rounds in the south of the country and in the north, everything is sort of negotiated privately. Um, so th- there's a really big difference between between the two. Um, but we're still talking about a, a lot of, of oil globally. I mean, you know, 5% or 10% of Iraqis oil wealth is still a, a good uh, amount of oil considering that Iraq has a, a good percentage, something like 10, 12% of the world's oil reserves. Yes, of course. Iraq as a whole, it, it holds a, a large percentage of the world's oil wealth and um, is an OPEC and is a major player in OPEC. Uh, but I just wanted to make clear that, that my book um, focuses on the Northern region um, and that's only because that uh, is where my companies were sending me at the time. And it's where I sort of had the, the best access uh, to tell the story of, of the plundering of the oil wealth in that region and how it contributed to the to the overall plundering of the country's uh, oil wealth. But yes, I mean, Iraq is a you know very significant player uh, in, in terms of the world oil market. Um, and it's it's at a very interesting time right now. Uh, given uh, what's going on in the country, especially um, in terms of, you know, the country just held, um, the Kurdish region just held its first referendum for independence, which was not upheld. Um, and now we have this big standoff between the Kurds and and the central government over oil wealth, you know, the whole sort of tension and, and sort of negotiations about the budget are focused on oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we are right now. It's, it's, and every the world's sort of looking at Iraq to to see what happens next. You know, they have elections coming up in the spring, um, but investors in particular are looking at Iraq to see if it will once again become a country ripe for investment um, and and steady enough for investment, or if it will um, you know sort of falter in that way, and if the and if its uh, economy will continue to sort of decline. So um, I remember watching the buildup to the uh, Iraq war and, and having Paul Wolfowitz, one of the architects of, of the Iraq war, who at the time was a, an official in the Department of Defense, saying, arguing that the uh, reconstruction uh, of Iraq after the war would pay for itself from oil money. Uh, he sort of famously said it would be hard to imagine that it would cost more to rebuild the uh, invasion than it would uh, to mount the invasion itself, given Iraq's oil wealth. So um, obviously right. that didn't happen. And your book, I think, explains one reason. Uh, there are probably many reasons why this has happened, but corruption is is a big reason here. So can you, uh, I guess, talk a little bit about like the mechanics of corruption of the oil sector in the Kurdish region? Like, How does it work from like a granular level? Sure. Yeah, I, I remember that quote that you that you're talking about. Um, the idea post, you know, invasion was that the country would rebuild itself sort of organically in, in the sense that it would use the wealth from its own oil and its own natural resources to invest in itself. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, the Kurdish region and, and possibly Iraq as a whole is sort of a classic example of the resource curse, right, where there, there's a significant amount of a particular kind of natural resource um, that should be used uh, hypothetically to generate revenue, which is then 
sort of injected back into the local economy to pay civil servants, to build roads and hospitals and schools. But as you said, rightly, that that didn't necessarily happen in the way we all thought it would. And so one of the reasons for that, um, looking at the Kurdish region in particular, um, and this the story is sort of similar in, in the central government, um, though it looks a bit different, is that there's an cr- incredible amount of corruption, um, particularly in the oil sector in the Kurdish region, right? So, um, and, and the corruption really, uh, it, it sort of trickles down from, from the top to the bottom into the local economy. But talking about the granular granular nature of corruption it's sort of the Kur- the kurdish political system is built up on on rivalries it's it's um, you know there's a incredible amount of political infighting between the two major political parties which are dominated by two main political families the barzani and the talibani families um and they're they're sort of constantly warring with each other for for power and money and influence and we we saw that really come to a peak um, after the invasion, um, with the development of of the oil sector in the region, where you know each party and each family, and thus each geographical region, really wanted sort of control over the process, control over bringing companies in and and signing contracts, and then wanted, uh, based off of that, wanted uh, the sort of bonuses that were attached onto the end of those contracts. And so, um, when you think about corruption in the region, you really have to look at the political system itself and the way it, way it developed over decades um, and how it sort of has clung on to these two main uh, political families. So, so basically these political families would demand the equivalent of bribes and kickbacks for the, um, in order to grant like oil concessions to major multinational oil conglomerates. So that was part of it. The kickbacks and, and the gifting w- was part of, of the corruption and can the you, oil can you just maybe like walk me through an example of, of that, that you've perhaps um, uncovered? Like what, sure. what does that actually look like? Sure. So when you talk to people who do business in the middle East, they often say, well, giving gifts is just part of the culture. It's just part of the way we do business, the business, the way they do business. But as we've seen over the years, um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, at least how we view it in, in the U.S., has gotten a lot stricter in the sense that people have actually begun tracking down these kinds of gifts and payments. And sort of one classic example that I write about in the book is about these 12 armored vehicles that are shipped from Abu Dhabi to to um, political leaders in Iraqi Kurdistan. And, and it's they're sent from um, this one major Middle East oil and uh, natural gas conglomerate um, that's based um, in, in Dubai and, um, they are sent one week before they actually, uh, sign their contract with, with the Kurds. And so that's just an example of, of the kind of sort of gifting and kickback that went on for years and, and throughout the region. Um, and so, as I said, though, the kickbacks and, and sort of the bonuses that were attached to some of these contracts were just part of, of what we call corruption in the oil sector. The other part of it was, when contracts were renegotiated or blocks, exploration blocks were split up and then sold off to other companies, there were uh, backdoor negotiations about uh, about those sort of um, those contracts that were then split up and sold off to other companies. Uh, there were, you know, bonuses attached to those as well. 
Um, sometimes that part of that money went um, into shell corporations uh, that were secretly owned by political uh, people in Iraqi Kurdistan. So that sort of encapsulates what we're looking at in terms of corruption there. And and the wealth generated from this oil revenue has been largely concentrated in the hands of just a few people you're, you're you're saying but has any trickled down has there been like some trickle down yeah i mean i think that in general when we look at the oil revenues that are generated in the region we're seeing a lot of it go to trying to pay uh civil servants um trying to pay the military to fight isis um but then there's also um you know the kurds have an incredible amount of debt that they owe for example, to Turkish companies, Turkish um, conglomerates that that they need to pay off. So part of it is going to repaying uh, debt that sort of generated uh, because in part because of the corruption that originally existed in the region. So um, the Kurds also have an extremely bloated uh, public payroll that needs slimming down. So, yes, I, I would say definitely money does go to things like the military and, and civil servants, but there is a chunk of money that, that does get squandered. So I think another interesting um, aspect of perhaps the disunifying effect of, of Kurdish oil wealth is um, that it, it sort of seems to um, weaken the Iraqi state as, as a whole. And, and there's this kind of famous example uh, when then Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson was trying to negotiate some oil concessions for, for Exxon in, in the Kurdistan region. If I recall correctly, and, and I'm sure you know the story better than I do, the Obama administration at the time uh, asked them not to sign with the Kurdish region, but to sign with the Iraqi central government, which was part of like an overall American strategy of bolstering the central government and creating like a stronger federal government. But uh, Tillerson demurred. Right, exactly. Um, so Exxon was the first international oil company to sign contracts both with the Kurds and with the central government in Baghdad. And that was something that other international companies before them hadn't thought was possible because of the tensions that existed between Erbil and Baghdad over oil revenues. Um, you know, it was a big um, victory for Exxon. Um, and obviously the State Department was furious about that. Um, you know, it, it was um, a big conflict uh, within the U.S. government at the time that Exxon had sort of found a way to to not uh, lose their contracts in the south while also signing in the north. Um, and there were there were one or two other companies that that successfully did that, including Total. Um, but for the most part, uh, it was either you signed in the south or you signed in the north. And and. Like uh, among the the sort of ordinary Kurdish people that you interviewed, I mean, is there a, a sense that their wealth that should be rightfully theirs has been plundered and and sent abroad? Is the anger directed towards their own elites or towards you know foreign uh, elites? I think it's both. Um, I think for the most part, you know, I've spent hours and hours and hours of talking to people in, in the region. And, you know, the common denominator among all of them is that they're really, you know, sort of devastated that their economy is the way it is right now. I mean, their main concern is that they want to provide for their families, right? They want to get through the day. They want to put food on the table. They want to be able to sort of make make money so their children can go to school, things like that. And so when they, when they think about um, why they're in the state they're in, um, it's sort of hard for them to 
parse out exactly, you know, how they feel about the the state of their economy, whether it's, you know, the result of local politicians or the result of the invasion or the re- result of contractors coming in and taking all local jobs. I mean, I think it's all of that combined. Um, there are a lot of people who are cynical about politics in the Kurdish region at this point and sort of have tuned out. There are other people that are really um, active in the, in the political scene um, and, and are part of civil society. But I think um, for the most part, a lot of the people I talk to don't really um, have much hope that things will change anytime soon for them. Um, I think that these current negotiations between Erbil and Baghdad are incredibly frustrating. Um, you know, the, the Kurdish economy is in a tailspin and, and it needs an, the region needs an influx of cash. And, um, in the meantime, you know, people are, are waiting to see whether or not, um, they'll be able to, their region will be able to sort of one day move forward again. So your background is as an investigative reporter, and and you uh, hone those skills to uh, expose aspects of of corruption in northern Iraq and in the oil sector. What um, details did you uncover that you think ought to be more widely known? Yeah, I mean, from my time reporting in Iraq, truth truth is really hard to come by there for a lot of different reasons. You know, access for the press is extremely limited. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of untruths out there about, you know, especially within the political realm. And so I began to sort of understand that there was a gap of reporting that was missing from, from the region, which didn't necessarily require me to be on the ground. I mean, a lot of how the oil sector in the KRG developed was dependent on you know, Western oil firms, um, you know, signing contracts and the negotiations that happened, you know, sort of in London and and, and Vienna and other areas. And so uh, what I ended up, you know, doing was sort of sifting through thousands of documents that I received from regulatory enforcement officers whose job it was to really look at the corruption, not only in just the Kurdish region, but throughout the entire country and post 2003 and to look at uh, they were tasked with looking at um, possible transactions that were would fall under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act um, that would be considered bribes or be considered um, litigious in some way. And so uh, it was because of their sort of openness with me um, and their ability to share those documents that I was able to really look at um, a broader um, set of, of negotiations and um, sell-offs and contracts and shell corporations that sort of painted a picture of the corruption in the region. Um, you know, a lot of what I received um, is still under litigation, so I wasn't able to put a lot of what, you know, I had in my hands in the book. I sort of had to parse that out very, very delicately. Um, but I think we'll begin to see more in the future Um more conversation around uh, the corruption in terms of contracts in the Kurdish region, especially as we begin to move forward. Are, are American companies liable here in, in any way, you think? Um, I think in part, yeah. I mean, I think that there were a lot of, um, there were dozens of companies in and out of the Kurdish region, whether they were exploring um, signing contracts, you know, having negotiations or what have you, um, that, um, yeah, I think in some way that they are sort of 
uh, liable. It depends on what you mean liable, right? Um, I think it's, uh, it's very tricky to sort of, um, exactly say, uh, without giving out away too much of what I know is going on in courts right now. Um, so I have to be careful about what I, what I talk about here, but I, I would say that there's definitely American involvement here that we should be looking at. Um, and it's not only American involvement, it's involvement of, of British companies. It's involvement, you know, of companies from across the world, really, that that need to be sort of scrutinized um, in terms of the, the contracts and, and the deals that were struck um, uh, as this oil sector was developing in a largely unregulated market. So in the, the process of, of investigating all this corruption, did you encounter sort of examples where everything was totally above the board, where uh, things, you know, proceeded as, you know, close to an ideal as, as they should have. And, you know, contracts were negotiated fairly without bribes and some of the wealth ended up trickling back into the community or coming back into the community in, in more meaningful ways. Like, did anything go right? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that every single contract that was signed was full of corruption. I think that there were um, contracts that were signed where there were bonuses attached to it that did end up going into funds that were supposed to uh, go into building, um, you know, roads and things like that, that did end up panning out, but not enough of it, not enough of those contracts, um, ended up that way where I can, you know, sit here and say that, you know, that, that we have nothing to look at here, if that makes any sense. It it doesn't make for an interesting book at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely, um, things that went right. I mean, I think a lot of people you talk to about the oil industry in the Kurdish region will say that Ashti Harami, the head of the natural resources um, department is, is sort of a wizard in a way, right? I write about that in the book that he's able to strike these negotiations that, um, you know, people before him um, hadn't in terms of the terms are a bit stricter um, and, and they sort of bring more money back into the, to the region than had, uh, they had before the invasion, you know, in the 2002 era of contracts. Um, so I think that a lot of people see him as a wheeler and dealer, somebody who's fighting to bring oil wealth back into, um, into the region. Um, but I, from my research that I've done, well, that, that is partially true. Uh, there were me- mechanics and, and a foundation that was sort of developed even before he really took office that, um, it's like a it's like a Jenga set, right? Where you keep pulling at at these pieces of wood, and everything gets you know more and more unsteady, and and that's because the foundation of it is is wobbly to begin with. And so, um, I think that's part of why the sector developed the way it did. So there was a period a couple of years ago where much of the region that we're discussing was controlled by ISIS, sure. uh, and you know. Therefore, like the the oil wealth also had to pass through ISIS in in some way or or another. How um how did sort of ISIS interact with um international or multinational oil uh oil companies and and the oil industry in general? Like how was ISIS able to exploit the region's oil wealth to their own nefarious ends? Sure, I mean ISIS was a completely um, I mean they took advantage of smuggling networks that had existed, you know, for decades under Saddam. Um, they were, they took over first, you know, small wells and refineries and fields and eventually took over enough of them where they were able to sort of sell oil on the black market. Um, you know, they weren't using any legitimate, you know, routes, uh, or what, ha- or, you know, routes that were used by, um, 
you know, international companies. Um, they would sell so, like on the black market to, to, to buyers in Turkey. Yeah, exactly. And, and would sell to, I mean, there were all a whole, whole, a whole group of people that, that took advantage of that, but they were mostly, you know, sort of local people. Um, and, and, um, and, and of course oil wasn't the only way that they made money. They taxed their people to, you know, they imposed very high taxes. They sold antiquities. Um, but yeah, I mean, oil was a large part, at least in the beginning, part of their sort of financial wealth. Um, but yeah, they took advantage of, of the black market that and the roots um, that had been established uh, in the western part of the country, you know, decades before they really even started to gain ground. Um, I guess just to the, to to wrap up, what um, do you hope your your book will accomplish? Uh, more than anything, I really hope that the book starts a conversation as as the country tries to move forward after ISIS and after the render referendum and and into the next elections. That you know these issues of corruption and transparency come to the forefront of the conversation. I think that they they they've been sliced and diced every which way um, for years, but they've never really landed at the top of anyone's priority list, at least for the political leaders in the country. Um, and and I really hope that that you know, this, these issues start to come to the forefront of the conversation. As I said, I think they're important. And I think that they're important to a functioning democracy. They're important to, you know, finding ways for Erbil and Baghdad to sort of come to a common ground. Um, and so more than anything, I hope the book sort of sheds light on some of the issues that are already at play, at least in the Kurdish region, um, and are considered um, not only by the local people, but um, by international oil companies as, you know, the things move forward in the country. Oh, well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was interesting. I, I will definitely post a, a link to the book on, on the website, but thank you. This was uh, a useful conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Aaron. That was helpful. And yeah, as I mentioned at the outset of the conversation, please do leave a review on iTunes. I still have stickers, a few left that I will send to you if you leave a review. So uh, just send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com after you left a review and I will stick a sticker in the mail. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.